If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast guest is Peter Frankopan, professor of global history at Oxford University and the best-selling author of The Silk Roads. Peter has also been announced as the chair of the jury for this year's Kuntil History Prize. Our world history editor, Matt Elton, caught up with him to discuss the importance of global history in 2020 and the books he's been most impressed by in recent years. So, um, Peter, you've just been announced as the chair of the Kuntil Prize uh, 2020. Um, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to catch up with you about sort of global history and uh, the state of that uh, this year. Um, what do you think has changed uh, in global history in the five years since you released Silk Roads? Well, I guess there's a m- much more vigorous discussion now about what, what global history really is. Um, and, you know, like all terms, it's, you know, it can be problematic. You know, for some people, what global history means is drawing big strands together which presents challenges and, and you know, opportunities too. Uh, some people, global history, what that means is, is looking at parts of the world that kind of get ignored or you know, have been left behind in a place like sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, pre-Columbian America. But you know, in, in all those fields, there, there are lots of fantastically interesting scholars working. Well, there are some, there are not, not as many, obviously, as working on, on more mainstream topics. 
So I suppose the thing that's changed most of all is that, that, that there's a, a great, I think, awareness in this country at university level, general public, students too, that you know, we, we have very heavily focused, when we think about history, very heavily focused on, on Western Europe. And I, I think that there's you know, the fact that, that now books are being published about other parts of the world are, are a reflection of the fact that publishers and, and, and readers at all levels are, are very open, I think, to the idea of, of looking at other parts of the world. And I mean, it's such an obvious thing to say, I suppose, that, that you know, our, we're very narrow-minded in how we look at the past. But, you know, when I, when I wrote Silk Roads, you know, I didn't think anybody was going to read my book because when I had been asked to go and talk at literary festivals or, you know, or even in faculties, you know, I could see that what it was that, that people are working on and the heavy, heavy dominance of 19th and 20th century British, European, and to some extent American history meant that, that looking at uh, different periods, different regions, and so on, um, the, the, the demand wasn't there. But it, it turns out the demand is there. The, the, the difficulty is, is that it's very difficult to do. And global history, whatever you think that it is, or whatever one wants to um, agree what it is, you know, it's very hard to do well. Um, partly because you know, you, the, the technical side of, of languages is not easy. Um, and particularly when it comes to collections of languages, you know, very few cultures are monolingual. You know, very few places exist in a world where, you know, and, uh, and in fact, Valerie Hansen at, at Yale, you know, I'm quite good on my languages. I remember when I met her in Yale a few years ago, and she started rattling through, you know, how's my Topcharian, how my different Sino-Tibetan languages. And, you know, you, you have to eventually look at your feet and go, I've done quite well to be able to get through 22 or 23 languages, whatever I read in Silk Road. So, you know, I think that there, is a, there, are, there are challenges to doing it. And also the difficulty is that in a lot of places, the reason how scholarship builds is that you, 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 you don't necessarily collaborate with individual scholars, but, you know, you are part of a historical tradition that has built up to a certain point, you know. So some fields are much more developed than others, and that, that means that they can also sometimes move faster. What's hard is when you're operating in a vacuum. You know, if you're looking at the history of the Turkmen, because very few people have done that, it just means that it's not particularly advanced. It's a very uncrowded field, a very empty field. And therefore, some basic stuff still needs doing. You know? and, and I know that as a Byzantine historian, that's how I've come to this sort of field of global stuff or bigger pictures, is that um, you know, very basic questions about the sequence of events, about chronologies, about very simple stuff about individual, very well-known sources, that just hasn't been asked because the, the attention hasn't been there. So... I think in the in the it's great that there are lots of people uh, working in that direction. There's a bit of tail wagging the dog that now that's all the publishers are looking for. Um, but you know, as a historian, the more that's written and the more that's read, the better. So um, you know, I think it's a robust state of affairs right now for uh, history writers because there are a lot of readers out there who want to find out, inform themselves about the past. Mm. It's obviously a hugely diverse uh, subject area. Um, and one that sounds like it's got more diverse in, in recent years. Are there certain things that you think mark out a particularly good global history book or that you look for um, in that kind of scholarship? Well, I th- you know, it's it's so varied exactly what one means and where, what, what one's looking at. But I suppose from my own per- per- personal viewpoint um, is, that, is, is that there's fine tuning on what's being written. And normally that means close engagement with primary sources. And understanding what the context is for letters written by Sogdian traders or you know, materials from Madagascar pre, pre-colonials. Um, you know, I think that that, that that is what's hard. And what, what 
often happens is that you have broad brush histories that are broadly unobjectionable, that they're fine, but the detailing isn't there. And increasingly, you know, it looks like there are a lot of these books that are being produced that don't have sometimes any footnotes. And I think that that's that that's the challenge. It's but but you know, I think that that uh, really good history is stuff that works in the primary sources, the primary materials outwards, and to master those materials and to know how to look at at, at stuff that is written a long time ago in different the different ways and formats. You know, it's it's not easy to to work through those kinds of texts. And sometimes, you know, the stuff that that can sell a lot of copies, uh, that's fine. But you know, th- there's a lot of space still to to work through. And it's not just the written materials, of course. It's the epi- the the epigraphy, the inscriptions, the legal text, the idea of where religion fits in all of this. So, really good history, I think, satisfies the general reader, but is also doesn't get, um, you know academic historians to fall off their chair and get their pencils out to underline everything. And, you know, my publisher, when I did Silk Roads, I told them I was going to have two and a half thousand footnotes. They were completely fine about it. They just said, look, in the footnotes, what we'd ideally is that you don't settle scores or introduce more problems. So reference where you need to. Um, and ideally, you, write, you, you reference a single or maybe, the, maybe a second work if you need to. But, you know, they didn't put me under any restrictions. And I've spoken to a few early career scholars recently and they've complained, actually, that their publishers, commercial publishers, have restricted what they put in their notes or how they use them. Or they've said they want a maximum number of books in the bibliography. And, and that seems to me um, highly counterproductive and possibly weakens how we read, read text. But, you know, other people take a different view on this. But I, I think it's possible to write highly detailed, highly tuned um, history that, that shows where the debts are to not just primary, but to secondary scholarship, too. And I'm sort of surprised that that quite a lot of heavyweight historians are now writing books where they sort of look like they're trying to write for a general audience. But I think you don't have to do one or the other. Do you think there's still uh, too many Western historians writing about non-Western history? Or are there, in fact, now more non-Western historians writing about all kinds of history? I think there are two different things. One is... um, about historians writing in other parts of the world. I think we're still very bad at finding, reading, and incorporating their scholarship. So a lot of the stuff that's being done on different parts of the world is being done through Western institutions. And that's a reflection of the global state of affairs, of wealth that goes into education, of of different salary levels. You know, if you're in many parts of the world, the the pay that you'll get in the States or in the UK is significantly higher than, than you might do domestically, even though cost of living, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the engine of history writing is being done in, in Western Europe and in, and in North America. Um, but having said that, uh, there are still fantastically good scholars in, in domestic audiences too. But just getting access to their books sometimes is, is more of a challenge. And their publishers don't have the same kind of reach to be able to get copies, so on. So there's a delay in getting, getting hold of them. Digital has, has changed some of that. You know, journal articles now pop up more or less in real time into the Bodleian Library. But, you know, for, for books published in, in Korea, Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, it can take years for them to get into the Bodleian Library collection. And, and they will get there. Um, but, you know, I think, so there are two different things. One is, where's the world history being written and global history? And second, how, how do institutions that are well-funded, how do we engage with scholars in other parts of the world that are less well-endowed than we are? And, and, some, and in, in a lot of cases, particularly in the regions and places I work, there's political leaning, leaning into history and into how one looks at the past. And that, that 
that creates its own problems and difficulties too. Mm. You know, and I, I grew up as a, you know, I, my, my first love was with Russia and with Soviet Union. And, and you had to learn how to read secondary sources because you weren't free as a scholar to write in the same way that you wanted to because you had a party official who might check and call you in. And, and I think one has to use historian skill to be able to interpret secondary sources, secondary material and, and histories written too. But, you know, it's not easy, for example, getting sensible books written in, in, from out of Iran. Mm. Um, so, I mean, what are the books or the authors that have stood out for you over the past few years, I suppose? Um, well, it's a very interesting question. I think that there are, that again, it depends how one splits it up. You know, I have to read, I have to read, I suppose, in four different categories now. So uh, first is for my own interest in my own work. And um, that's already quite a substantial region and, and period that I look at, you know, because I do um, longer, long periods right now, you know, things like by Walter Scheidel has written a fantastic new book about, about empires and how they hang and fall together. Um, but then I also, I also am asked to read a lot of advanced manuscripts uh, you know, with the idea that if you put some nice words on the front cover, that can make a difference. And there's a real range of people who who ask and 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 you know, I, I particularly younger scholars, I try if I can to drop everything and, and read what they're doing. And um, you know, Daniel Markey's just written a terrific book about uh, the, about China and its way that it looks at its western provinces and at the at, at its sort of you know Silk Roads. John Hillman, likewise. Um, then the third element is things that sort of catch my eye for future projects that I'm either working on or thinking about working on. So I've been reading something terrific by Corey Ross about environment, the environment and um, empire and, you know, the way in which colonialism had an impact on how we look at the natural world and how we intervened successfully or, and mostly unsuccessfully. And then the kind of fourth category are kind of, um, you know, I'm a voracious reader anyway, but things that, that don't fit into something I'm working on, I'm not being asked to do or forced to do, not part of my work, but just seem to me to be quite interesting. And you never know quite where those are going to end up. So some of those things can be in the form of, of reports issued by banks. Some of them can be evaluations by NGOs in, in South Asia. At the moment, I'm for, for reasons that, you know, I'm trying to look at the history of, of Burma, South Asia, and Southeast Asia that I've never really worked that much on. And that that probably won't fit into anything in particular, but um, but trying to pick out um, you know anything ranging from colonial office records that you know you'll lose lose yourself for a day or two uh, just to fill in blanks that I'm acutely aware of things that I don't um, I don't know an enormous amount about. So you know things 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 can sort of change. I mean, for example, today I've been looking at a new paper by um, Douglas Kennett about new isotope evidence for when maize becomes a staple grain in the Americas. And, you know, that, that, that I think is just about being open-minded. One of the, I think it is, it is true, though, Matt, that one of the problems about becoming a historian, and particularly an academic historian, is that you have your tram lines of what your subject is. And um, st- staying within those tram lines is, is tricky because, you know, particularly if you're in a very populated field, there are a lot of people working on it and just the generation of materials but at the same time, there's always a, I've always been tempted to look over the sides to see what else is happening and, uh, and so on. And, and th- that can be difficult if you're teaching courses about particular subjects. You know, then you don't have the luxury always of disappearing back a thousand years or, or looking at you know, proto-Arcadian inscriptions because that all takes time. So, um, so there, are the di- there are the different kind of vats that I'm trying to juggle. In a funny way, lockdown has 
probably made that easier because time has become for all of us much more elastic. And I've been using it as an opportunity to try to, to, to broaden my mind. I think one of the challenges we have in education is we sort of think that education stops when you finish university or finish you finish your PhD. That's you're then locked in. Um, but I'm very interested in the idea of, of what education should mean for middle-aged man like me who's got the, the uh, time and ability to access materials and, and, and read and to do that in a way that isn't haphazard. Mm. And it sounds like you think some of that value is about making connections across different fields and different types of, of evidence, different types of documents. Yeah, I think that I am interested in that. I mean, I, mean, I suppose uh, fundamentally, I mean, somebody asked me a few years ago, you know, well, what am I really interested in? And, and I stopped and thought because I, I, my instinctive answer would be to use geography or use chronology to explain here's a period, you know, I mean, you know, when I when I became a, a young young academic, you know, teaching the Byzantine Empire from two eight four or four seven six or pick whatever date until fourteen fifty three, that's already a thousand years that you're looking at. I suppose, and so I thought about it, and I said, well, I, actually, what I'm really interested in is in is in histories of exchanges, and commercial obviously leads with some of that, but in terms of religion, linguistics, you know, uh, in terms of genetics, now the materials that we can look at. So I'm interested, and I think in, in connections, and and some of those. A lot of those go go down dead ends, um, but I, I, I'm particularly interested in trying to find ways of of trying to join dots together and to see parallels and and to to try to make those kind of connections. But it, again, that that they can be anecdotal, and they don't necessarily fit into a sort of master plan. And you know, part of it is what what it is that you're trying to do. And and right now, I, I'm still I think that that part of the challenge is to be not closing off any doors. So looking over the top into different fields and different areas and, and so on, I think is, is what makes me wake up every day being excited to be a historian. Whereas if I was stuck with, you know, I, I, love, the, I love 12th and 13th century Byzantium, and I'm sure I'd be thrilled looking at that every day. But I, I do like the fact that I can wake up in the morning and, and drift off into, um, into South America and, and think about, well, if I thought that this about isotopes of maize well what do i think about you know how do we measure when when and where wheat is being grown in asia minor and and what kind of questions can we ask from that so sometimes sometimes what you're looking at doesn't solve any problems but it, it raises new methodologies to think about your own backyard a bit better still to come on the history extra podcast right so you might might argue with it you might think that the methodology is wrong you might think the, co- the, the the conclusions aren't put together right but you start with the data sampling and you start with the evidence rather than with what you think might or might might not sound plausible so i think that 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 shows why history can be so incredibly important and, and incredibly provocative if you ask the right kinds of questions We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You mentioned at the start Valerie Hansen's book about A um, Thousand AD, in which she basically says that globalisation started much sooner than we think. I wondered what you thought about that uh, take on global history. She's terrific, Valerie, and she's been working on the Silk Road for years and in many ways is a, is a real inspiration to me. So, you know, I, I think it's probably not a surprise to know that I, I'm broadly on the same page with her, that, you know, globalisation is, is not, a, not something new. Clearly, the pace and intensity are, are different um, today. I mean, as it happens, I've talked with her about it too. You know, it, I would push it back a thousand years earlier. I mean, we find exchange going on um, it, back at, back in, in in the year zero and before, so you know, but I, I wouldn't wouldn't argue with it. I mean, in fact, as I know very well as she does, terms like Silk Roads and globalization are themselves, the, the, in a way, the least interesting things to get hooked up on. What Valerie is really painting is a picture of an, a deeply interconnected world in the year thousand, and so that's the kind of hook to allow her to talk about pre-Columbian, and she talks about Central American cultures. She talks about, of course, the Silk Roads, South Asia, Southeast Asia. Uh, a bit of Ethiopia too, you know. And I'm very, you know, I'm very taken with the idea of trying to find a, a good excuse to write about these kinds of things. And Valerie does that very well, and and she writes lucidly and beautifully too. So you know, I'm a, I'm a real I'm a real fan. And also, you know, uh, despite the fact that she has all these Tocharian and uh, Sino-Tibetan languages, I think it's terrific, you know, to feel unlimited to go and explore other cultures around the same time too. So I think it works really well. And I'm not surprised it's had such good reviews. Mm. Um, it's a slightly odd question, this, but what are the global history books that you think desperately need to be written? David Abelafia wrote a fantastic book called The Boundless Sea, um, which goes back, you know, tens of thousands of years of trying to, to, to explain how waterways and oceans have being connectors, but also uh, barriers to human exploration and exchange. And, you know, I think that's incredibly important to look at sea, sea maritime routes uh, as well as that, you know, it's not either or. I, I think there are real parts of the world that we don't spend a great deal of time thinking about. I mean, sub-Saharan Africa, in terms of history writing and in terms of just field work, you know, because imperial cultures, Britain, France, etc., uh, have have controlled the purse strings of the world for the last three or 400 years. Of course, the, the regions that they have controlled and their scholars have been interested in have been the ones that have had the most intensive excavations, the most intensive work being done, and you know, also the most intensive pillaging of bringing materials back to fill those lovely museums in the UK and in France, et cetera, et cetera. 
So, you know, I think that there's a lot of work to be to be done on um, on different regions. I think there are a lot of periods that we don't really look at in, in a great deal of detail. Um, you know, the so-called Dark Ages, late antiquity, as we now call it. Uh, I think it's a much, much fuller field in the last 20 years than it was before. And, and people like Peter Brown, Abel Cameron, Peter Saris um, at Cambridge have been fantastic in, in pushing forwards these periods and these sources. Uh, but, you know, I think that there's no, there's no shortage of places to go and look. I mean, I, I defy you to find me someone who can talk about the Circassians or about, you know, to talk about the Mamluks in Egypt. Uh, you know, for the number of voices working on Ottoman history, you know, it's rising, but it's still not huge. But, you know, uh, Nuhat Farleek and Sam White, who's done work on the Ottomans, are fantastic. You know, the stuff they're doing, it's cut, cutting edge, really exciting and reshaping the fields. And so generally, if you, if you try and look for periods and regions, you'll find outstanding scholars. But it's as much about finding the oxygen to get their books onto people's reading lists and into their hands, as much as saying, well, what, what it is that, that we could do. But uh, Sujit Sivasundaram, also uh, a colleague of mine, he's, he's at Cambridge, has written a book about Oceania and looking at the waves and how, how the... How, the oceans have connected and the roles that colonial peoples have played in misunderstanding and also in shaping histories in, in Polynesia and New Zealand, et cetera, et cetera. Really exciting. So I think it's not so much fill in the blanks as, you know, what is there that's being written and who's writing about it and uh, how, how exciting is it? Um, and the past five years have obviously been hugely um, kind of full of incident, um, political incident, economic, social. Um, do you think uh, things like the coronavirus uh, crisis do they change our need to understand global history? Well, I think global history—it's the other way around. Global history starts with understanding what is it that really affects everybody, and disease is probably number one on that list in terms of uh, the fact that you can have whatever borders, empires, periods you like, but you know, the 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 jump from um, animals into humans, the way in which um, communicable diseases have shaped history. I think it's 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 almost lecture one of the series or lesson one of the series of how we should look at the past and what's interesting is that we have been much more interested in in looking at the rise of the third reich and human suffering and how humans kill each other rather than how how the biological side of things work i think we're much better at that now people like monica green real trailblazer i think in in trying to put disease at the center of of um understanding of history and and i think also explaining that that the, the written sources that historians grow up with, you know, it's not enough to just be able to read and to read intelligently. Understanding genomic materials, understanding how to use DNA materials, understanding how to use the sciences, increasingly important too. So again, when we have these discussions in the press and at political level about humanities or STEM, you know, I mean, there's really not a great deal of difference. These have to work side by side with each other. So I think with, when it came when it came to coronavirus, what what happened is everybody ran to Google Books and ran to to the Spanish flu and the Black Death. Um, but you know, I think if you're a historian who works on on exchange, it's not a surprise that these things happen. And in fact, in December, I I, I wrote something about it in Prospect Magazine that they kindly put on the front. You know, I, they said what what's going to shape the world in the next. 10 years. Maybe write about China or the digital stuff or Trump or North Korea or Russia or, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in. And I said, it's very simple. The things that is going to be most affecting our world will be, um, will be pandemic. And the second thing that will shape it will be the fact there's no global plan to deal with a pandemic. 
and I wrote in the email, I said, I, I'm afraid I think we're going to find, about, find out about that sooner than later. And that was published, I think, on December the 8th, which was the day that the authorities in Wuhan um, identified the first patient who had something really wrong with them with respiratory disease. So, in t- you know, historians get it wrong often thinking about the future. In fact, the number of hot takes at the moment on, on Twitter about what's going to happen uh, in the coming months and so on, you know, some of them are bound to be right, but most, I guess, will be probably wrong. But what, what I think the historian's way of looking at this is, is how, how have diseases in the past shaped us and shaped society? And again, at the moment, most of that focus is on the economy. Actually, I think that the cultural, the social, the sociological, the behavioral impacts will be much greater and also much harder to, to identify. And of course, that's why it's much easier to talk about jobs and the economy. But I think, I think there, there will be long-term consequences, one of which, for example, is that um, uh, some new research, actually, not, which I, I've been reading rather than writing, been involved in, is that places in Germany that saw attacks on Jews in the Black Death in the 1340s, um, Jews and minorities and foreigners were blamed for this disease that came and killed, and, that, and those you know, mortality rates 30% plus, uh, in some places in Germany, there were very violent pogroms and attacks, uh, horrific persecutions and murder, you know, synagogues being set on fire with people inside them and so on. Uh, as it happens, the port cities in Germany, places that had higher levels of, of trade, didn't see those kind of attacks, presumably because places that are multicultural tend to be more tolerant and so on. There are lots of other reasons. But it turns out that, um, scroll forward 600 years, uh, places where anti-Jewish pogroms had taken place at the time of the Black Death, were six times more likely to see attacks on Jews um, in the 1920s and 1930s. And so some of this stuff that we see, some of the consequences of pandemics and disease, even ones that you know, mercifully inf- have infected a lot of people but you know, have not killed on the same scale, things like the Black Death, can, have, can leave traces that, that last not just for generations or decades, but for centuries. And some of that stuff needs to be really well understood. And the correlation of this kind of material, it's, it's not based on one town. It's not based on, you know, it's based on data, right? So you might, might argue with it. You might think that the methodology is wrong. You might think the, 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 the conclusions aren't put together, right? But you start with the data sampling and you start with the evidence rather than with what you think might or might, might not sound plausible. So I think that, that that shows why history can be so incredibly important and, and incredibly provocative if you ask the right kinds of questions. Um, another trend of the past a few years has been the sort of uh, the rise of populist nationalism. Do you think that the growth of nationalism uh, challenges our view of a globalised world, or do you think it's a distraction from what's actually happening? I think a lot depends what you mean by populism. You know, I think it depends what you mean by by leaders who pander to their elites or they pander to the to the majorities you know i think those are all deeply recognizable in in long distance history as well as the recent past you know i think it's something that is not at all new i think it's something that's not in some ways also not even necessarily that interesting you know the fact that leaders like stay in power mobilize antagonize polarize and, and uh, get people angry and to turn on each other you know that 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 is something that that you know you can see in all sorts of history, you know, Justinian and the, with the Nicaraguans in the in the sixth century, you know, there are all all sorts of moments in the past where leaders look like they're going to lose control. Uh, you know, the Emperor Theodosius, for example, was supposedly very popular because he was good at cracking jokes and you know winning people over, and it was important to have 
wide public support. You know, the reason why lots of histories get, get written is to explain how um, particular leaders are interesting, important, and able to connect with large numbers of their citizens or subjects or, or, or voters. So in that sense, I think it's it, it, we can be misleading to think that somehow this is brand new. I think it could be misleading to think that this is somehow a unique challenge to us. I do think what's different today is, is the digital networks that allow and encourage uh, us to uh, fan ideas. But, you know, if you study the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution, you know, even, even under Trump, uh, under Brexit and so on, you know, they're striking what's happening on the news. But, you know, it's not seismic in the way uh, that those two events were. And, and it might become that, you know, we might be sitting, listening to this on a, on a desert island in a year's time and, and think, gosh, how do we not see what was coming? And so I'm not, I'm not making any predictions of where it might go. In fact, today, as we're talking, you know, there are, there's a big fence is being put up outside the White House, you know, troops being recalled to their barracks in Washington. So nothing is off the cards. But, but in terms of putting it within its context, it's recognizable, uh, there are parallels. And, you know, we should start at that point rather than thinking that we're somehow the special ones living through an era of enormous change. Because I'd still rather be alive in 2020 with coronavirus, with uh, pandemics, with Donald Trump in the White House, with, you know, China on the move uh, and climate change. I'd rather be living now than I would be 100 years ago during the First World War or during the Second World War in almost any part of the world. That was Peter Frankopan. For more about the 2020 Kundal History Prize, of which History Extra is a media partner, see kundalprize.com. You can read a version of this interview with Peter in the August issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes articles on medieval royal dynasties, the Roman Emperor Nero, the civil rights movement, myths of Victorian London, and a whole lot more. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Friday when Peter Snow and Anne McMillan will be discussing their new book on the treasures of world history.